0: Hey, thanks for joining us here at the Vineyard Church Podcast. For more video messages and content, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. There's a lot of great resources there that are free and will help you grow closer to God and help you connect with the church. Right now, let's go to our Connections Director, Jen Lewis, for this week's message. Well, happy 4th of July, everyone! We are working our way through Mark. We've been doing that pretty much for the last six months, and so we're about halfway through. We're making this kind of a year-long series. And so if you are new with us, you can go back online, catch up all that we've that we've talked about so far. This week, we are going to be in Mark chapter 8. So if you want to go ahead and, and, and uh, turn there or get your Bible app and click to the right spot, we're going to be in Mark chapter eight, starting in verse fourteen, last last week Chris covered the feeding of the four thousand, and um, I don't know if when he started talking you thought to yourself, "What? We're doing the feeding of the four thousand? I thought we already did that." In fact, the last time I preached a few months ago, um, I did the feeding of the five thousand. Jesus miraculously fed thousands of people. Twice, as far as we know, according to the Scriptures. And so we are coming off of that big miracle. And we're kind of overlapping a little bit um, with last week's message. Because in order for you to understand what we're talking about today— you'll have to understand what we talked about last week. So if you missed last week, you can go back online and check that out. But I will be covering a little bit of what Chris talked about. Now, a couple weeks ago, um, someone gave me Amish Friendship Bread Starter. Now, are any of you familiar with Amish friendship bread? So what it is, if you don't know, is it's this little Ziploc bag of fermented batter that when you follow the directions and the recipe, you end up with this sweet, delectable cinnamon, cinnamony, is that a word, bread um, that is so good. And the, and, the, and basically the story behind Amish friendship bread, is that somewhere, sometime long ago, I guess there was an Amish woman who put together some batter. And she put sugar and milk and and flour in the batter, and she let it sit out and ferment on the counter for several days. She'd occasionally stir it, and occasionally she'd add a few more ingredients. But over time, this batter um, just became Fermented with all this good stuff, so that when you mix it up finally in the end and you baked it, you get this beautiful bread. Well, the idea behind why it's friendship bread is before you finish the bread, you take just a little bit of that starter batter and you divide it up into three or four servings and you don't, you set it aside, you don't put it in the bread. Then you bake your bread, you eat your bread, whatever, and then you give the starter batter to your friends you give them the recipe and then they you know use that as their starter and then they begin to ferment the extra, you know, they put in extra milk, extra sugar, extra flour, and they ferment it on their counter for several days. And so the reason I think this happened years ago is because I've been doing this occasionally, um, I don't know, for a couple decades. You know, every once in a while it'll come back around to me where someone will give me a starter and I don't know where that starter really started and how long ago it was, but man does it make good bread. And so recently someone, you know, gave me the recipe again and, and gave me a bag with the, all the goodness. And so what you do, you squish it, and then the air will, will kind of, as it ferments, it creates this air, and the bag gets really big. And then you have to un- you know, unzip it and, and smush it down and close it back up. And it's this whole process. Well, unfortunately, my husband was not aware of the delectableness of fermented bread, and he saw the Ziploc bag sitting on the counter for a few days and just considered it a mad scientist project from one of my children and decided that it was disgusting and that it was going to make a mess, and so he threw it away. Now we can jokingly say that he was listening to Jesus when Jesus says in chapter eight, verse 16, beware of the yeast because he got rid of what would make such good bread. And I don't know how to start it. I don't know. I think you just can find the recipe online now to start the starter. But anyway, we missed out on the bread. And when I think about that starter batter, I think about yeast. I think about what yeast does In bread, because it's that same idea with that fermented batter. Just a little bit of that beginning batter is what makes for this puffy, beautiful, moist bread that you just want to eat forever. So where we pick up here in Mark chapter 8, Jesus is referring to this this yeast or what we would think of when we think of that that little bit of something, you know, you get at the store where you just put a little bit of the powder in in the dough um, to to make a a really beautiful Italian loaf or something like that. And he says to the disciples, uh, beware of the yeast. Now let me catch you up to where he is at this point. So he had just fed the four thousand we talked about, and he had fed five thousand people um, a few chapters back. And that he fed that he fed those people. Those were the Jews. He, so he fed miraculously the Jewish people. Then he went to this different place and had a similar predicament where there wasn't enough food. And these were among the this was among the Gentiles. And so Jesus fed um, also the non-Jews, thousands of people. He fed with just a few. Um, pieces of, of, of bread and fish to start. So then after he feeds these, the, the 4,000, and it's this amazing miracle, he gets in a boat with the disciples and he goes to a different part of uh, the area and he meets up with some Pharisees and the Pharisees demand a sign. They come to him and all their like pomp and, and, and all their, you know, just self-importance and they demand that Jesus gives, him, gives them a sign. And he basically looks at them and says, no, I'm not doing that. Gets back in the boat and rows away, which is kind of interesting because he just did something miraculous. He just had a sign and performed a sign in front of 4,000 non-Jews. So it's interesting um, to consider that. And we need to remember that as we look at what happens next. So he gets in the boat with his disciples and it says, and let me find the verse here in uh, verse 15 of chapter eight. He says, be careful, Jesus warned them, meaning the disciples. He's talking to the disciples. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Now, Chris talked last week a little bit about what he's referring to here and how the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod really at its core was pride. That both the Pharisees and Herod thought very much of themselves, you know, and it, and it worked itself out a little bit different in each of their, in each of their lives. For the Pharisees, it, it manifests itself in a reliance on their, in their own ability to be religious and to be righteous and how they um, it became more about them than it was about God. And for Herod, we see that it was, it was a pride as well. And, and for him, it manifested a little bit different in a, in a pride that um, elevated his own desires for power or for, um, we see kind of this lustful um, desire as well in Herod's life. And so he's directed by that pride. And life was all about him. For both the Pharisees and for Herod, life was all about them because they were full of pride. And so Jesus is telling the disciples, beware of a life that's all about you. Beware of the pride that, that they, they influence with. And he, he, he refers to this influence like yeast. That it's like that fermenting batter that you just put a little bit in. Just a little bit of that influence. And it's this quiet but potent, powerful, rapidly spreading negative influence in our lives. And that it only takes just a little bit of that influence from, uh, you know, that the Pharisees have and, and Herod have over them, those people of power have over the the people of that day, and it wasn't good for them. And, you know, as I think about this, this um kind of just encouragement or challenge that Jesus is giving, warning that Jesus is giving the disciples, I think about the yeast that we have in our own culture today. Because we do, if we look around, the people in power over us and influence over us today, um, they really can have a negative influence on us as well. You know, Chris was talking and has been talking over the last several weeks about how religiosity um, has this negative impact on us, like, like just like how the Pharisees relied on their religious activity to make them right with God, that we can fall into that trap too. That it becomes all about us as we are trying to do everything right all the time. And, and, and we end up relying on our own self and thinking highly of our own abilities instead of relying on our relationship with our Heavenly Father. It becomes all about us all about what we can do to earn the favor of God. But you know, we see this in our culture as well. You know, we see it in church uh, around us. We can see that even in our own tendencies. But honestly, I'm seeing it in the unrealistic expectations of even the secular culture around us. More and more these days, there's this pervasive thought that, that we have got to all behave a certain way in society, that we, we have to post the right hashtag, or we have to behave in a socially acceptable way, or we have to approve of, of certain people or certain viewpoints, or have certain political leanings. And if we don't do exactly as the culture says is what we're supposed to do in that moment, then we're not okay. Okay. In both cases, religious and secular sides of our culture begin to rely on our own behavior to make us righteous, to make us in right standing, either with public opinion or with God. But the gospel of Jesus tells us that we we can't be righteous on our own. We can't be perfect. That it's, it's, it's our imperfection that ultimately brings Jesus to come and live the perfect life in our place so that, so that we can have a right relationship with God. It's Jesus's blood that makes us righteous, not our own behavior, not what we're capable of, because we're not. And honestly, I have to say I'm so thankful that I don't have to be perfect. I, I don't know about you, but have you ever tried to just constantly— I mean, I'm sure to some extent we all do— Try to just be perfect with everything we say or 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 phrase things a specific way or 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 in conversations try to, to make ourselves appear perfect and it becomes exhausting and it's unattainable. We can't do it. I remember one time I was correcting my child at the end of the day, and she just burst into tears. And she said, I've been trying all day long to do it right, and I just can't. And and that's how we can feel at times where we just can't do it. And God knows that. He gets it. That's why Jesus came. But when we begin to think about how, when we begin to think it's all about us, it's all about what we do, it's all about us being perfect, it ends up screwing us up. And if we ever end up doing, you know, being kind of pretty good at being good at, at at appearing perfect, even though we know we're not, really, I mean, we can become so prideful and ugly on the inside. And that's not what God wants for us. Jesus knew that the Pharisees' hearts were hard, and that's why he didn't perform a miracle for them. He doesn't want hard hearts. He doesn't want us to be unresponsive and unreceptive to him. And the scholars argue that in the reference with Herod is that it's really pointing to this self-importance that elevates our own desires above God's desires. And we see this in our culture as well. You know, for Herod, there was, there was a, a lust for power, but there was also a lust for inappropriate relationships, at least one with his sister-in-law who becomes his wife. And for us, in our culture, there's, there's, it has become this thing where sexual desire becomes like the most important defining part of who you are, which nowhere in Scripture does it point to that at all. You know, oftentimes it's even used as the primary director of the decisions that people make in life. Jesus says, beware of influences like this, that even the tiniest bit of this in our lives can have a negative effect, can impact us in significant ways, especially if we elevate these ideas above God's ideas. You know, while I was preparing the message, I thought about the characteristics of yeast that are so interesting. It really is just this little bit that goes into the big batch of dough. You know, it, it's, it's a powerhouse. It changes something from matzo bread or a cracker into something like Saloni's bread, you know? And and what's amazing about it is that we don't realize how significant just a little bit of negative influence in our lives can impact us. And I think about this when I think about the media we consume on a regular basis. Now, Obviously, I mean, I feel like we're we're always talking about social media and how that influences us, and of course it does, but also I think about news and how w- the kind of news and the amount of news we take in and which news we take in, how that impacts us, or TV shows or or what we watch on YouTube or TikTok, just all those things kind of coming in. What happens is that when we're watching those things, we we get in this mode of just like dull, dumb receptiveness. I don't know how else to describe it. Have you ever watched someone watching TV or watched someone watching their phone? Like, they're just like this. It's just like this, like, I'm you know. And, and what happens is we take our guard down. Like, we are not, as we are consuming this information or consuming this media, so often we don't have our guard up and we aren't looking at things critically and it just influences us. And what ends up happening is the media that we are you, you know, using to inform us ends up forming us. It's not just this little piece of information here and this little piece of information here. It's yeast influencing us and potentially spreading throughout our lives. And that can, can infu- influence the way we view what's right and what's wrong. It can influence our political views, our relational habits, our, our just behavior that, of interacting with others. And oftentimes, we're completely unaware of it. The other characteristic of yeast that I thought about was that it produces nothing of substance. Now, you may think to me, well, of course it produces substance. Club cracker, Saloni's bread, what are you talking about? Big difference. Yes, but what the yeast is doing is it's just puffing it up with air. Yeast has nothing of substance. It's not giving us anything. And this negative influence that comes into our lives, this pride or the, the influence of those in power above us, it puffs us up with nothing of substance, nothing of eternal consequence that's good. It fills us with fluff and not God's thoughts. You know, we... we, we we have defined, We decide to define ourselves based on our physical desires that come and go and don't define ourselves by our creator. Or, or we, we, we decide to look at the view, you know, to, to look at the world through how other human beings look at the world. And, that, and there, those views can change within 10 minutes of each other. Or we decide, okay, we will define, we'll get all of our rules and all of our ideas from the world around us Instead of looking to the rules of the man, who, of the God who created it all, it's just interesting how we've got this yeast in our lives as well, and it leads to nothing good. And Jesus is warning his disciples, and I believe he's warning us in this section of scripture to be careful of the quiet but very powerful influence of those in power around us. But what's funny? is that the disciples totally miss it. That when they're on this boat ride, you know, they've had this miraculous situation with the 4,000. And then they've had this really interesting interaction with the Pharisees where they know Jesus is capable of signs, but he looks at them and says, no, and rows away. So they're in the boat and they're, you know, just kind of like trying to figure all this out. And and then Jesus says this, and they totally miss it. I I, honestly, it's it's comical. Look at at verse fourteen. Go back just a few verses. It says, the disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. So remember, this is all happening right after the the miraculous feeding of the four thousand. So they had some some bread left over, and they they only brought one loaf apparently. And then it says in verse 15, Jesus warned them, be careful, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and of that of Herod, which we just said. And then the disciples, it says, they discussed this with one another and said, it's because we have no bread. Now, God loved the disciples, like they totally miss it. Jesus has now done this twice where he has taken a little bit of bread and made it enough for thousands of people. And they're worried and thinking he's talking about the fact that they didn't bring the leftovers. It, you know what? It's all about them. You know how we talk about this. this is our tendency. It became all about them. Jesus is trying to share this spiritual truth with them and they completely miss it. They completely miss it. It's all about them. Oh my gosh, we are so dumb. I can't believe we did not bring the bread. I I mean, we had seven loaves. We we would have been fine. You know, you would think that food supply issues would never be a concern for them again. I don't know how they went down this road, but they did. And and before we make fun of the disciples, which you know can be easy to do with our 2020 vision, you know, and looking back with our commentaries, and we're so smart, we can figure this all out, and the disciples couldn't. We do this too. We do this too all the time, it becomes about us. Every single day, it becomes about us. Our prayers are all about us. Or we do something wrong and, 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 and we have a hard time forgiving ourselves and we, we go into that self-deprecating kind of cycle of like, ah, oh, I'm horrible, I stink, I'm never gonna be good enough or, or whatever. Or it becomes about us in that, oh God, bless me. Oh God, help me. Oh God, do this for me, do that for me. And we get so focused on either our own failings or our own desires that we forget what God has done, we forget what he's capable, and we miss out on the kingdom of God that's right in front of us. And with this miraculous feeding, Jesus was showing his disciples, look, I can supply enough, and not only can I supply enough, I can supply more than enough. I have leftovers. And he did it without the help of the disciples. And he does all that he does without our help. He, he takes our help. He takes the disciples' help because he wants to involve us, but he doesn't need us. He didn't need them to remember the bread. So it's interesting because we always, I always love when I see how Jesus is compassionate and patient. You know, compassionate and, patient. and in this moment, it almost appears like Jesus has run out of patience. And he says this. It says, aware of the discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? I heard a pastor one time describe this as if it was like this moment in a minivan where the dad has finally just lost it and he yells at all the kids in the back who are, you know, whatever they're doing to each other. And I don't know. I don't know the tone of these questions, but I can imagine that Jesus is just like, are you kidding me? What in the world, people? Like, did you not just see what I did? I had leftover bread. Do you think I can't just make bread right now in the middle of a boat? This isn't about bread. You know, I mean, I could just, ah, you guys, come on. And what's funny is how the disciples respond because it's like these one word answers only when they know it's safe to answer. You know, it's the barrage of questions, one after another, after another. And then finally Jesus takes a breath. You know, he says, how many basketfuls of of pieces did did we pick up? And they say, 12, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? And they answer, seven. (laughs) And he said to them, do you still not understand? He asks eight questions in a row, just one after another after another. Now, these were the kind of questions that prophets in the Old Testament would have asked the people around them. Very similar if you look back into the Old Testament. But I can imagine the tension in the boat. You know, they they already felt bad about not bringing the leftovers. And now they're like, oh, my gosh, we're complete idiots. You know, I don't know, like, how it felt in that moment. But anyway, what we'll see is that this next miracle that we're going to talk about next is referring back to all of this. So Chris talked about a lot of this last week. But in order for you to understand this next miracle, you have to get the context of that. Okay, so they're, they're rowing across, they're going to another part of the area now and they land in a fishing town called Bethsaida and it says this, they came to Bethsaida and some people brought a blind man and begged for Jesus to touch him. Now, I love this story because it reminds me of another favorite story, which is when the friends bring the paralyzed man to Jesus and they dig in through the roof and they bring him down. And it's just this idea of friends bringing their friend who needs Jesus to him. And, and I don't know if they're bringing him just because you know he's blind and he needs help getting to Jesus or you wonder, did the blind man really have faith enough For healing at this point you know you if you put yourself in the blind man's shoes you've got to wonder in this day and time back when Jesus was was around you know there weren't surgeries there weren't doctors who who had success with with healing blindness or fixing things there was very little hope for someone who had an ailment like blindness and so you wonder if this guy has just tried everything under the sun, if he's been praying for years and, and doesn't have a whole lot of hope. And so the friends bring him. Um, but just tough for him, you know, when you think about, about who he was and 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 how he was feeling at the moment. But Jesus does something interesting in this process. It says he took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. You know, it's little things like this that show Jesus's humility and his kindness and his compassion. But Jesus takes him by the hand. And I love that. Jesus touches him. Jesus sees him. Jesus takes time for him. And for some reason, he takes him away from the crowds. And he doesn't order somebody else to take him somewhere else. He reaches out to him. He walks with him and takes him To a less crowded place. Now, Baseda was a fishing town of about 10,000. And so, if they're on the shore, things were probably busy on the shore. And it's obvious that Jesus didn't want them to be around a crowd of people. And what you'll see as we go through this is, I think, and, and some scholars have pointed out, that they think Jesus guided him away from the crowds because it wasn't just about the blind man in this situation, that Jesus wanted to show the disciples something. And he wanted to teach them a lesson. And so he wanted to get them away from the distractions that there would be in a crowd. And you know, you think about this, you think about this, just this short, you know, they say it in one statement that Jesus guided him, you know, away from the, from the town. But I think about that walk, that little walk that Jesus took with this man. You know, if you've ever seen someone or if you have ever yourself guided a blind person, it takes care. It takes intention. It takes kind of an extra awareness of what's around you to make sure that they don't trip up. You know, it makes me think, did Jesus talk to him along the way? Did he veer him around puddles and and tell him to watch out for the stone in front of him? Did he he ask him about his life and about how he was blind and and how long he's been dealing with this? What was that walk like? And we don't know that. But It's just one of those moments where you think Jesus really saw him. It wasn't just, I'm going to tick off another to-do list. I'm going to heal another somebody. But he really had this moment with the blind man. I just think that's neat. Anyway, it says, eventually they got to a suitable spot you know and they and they have this moment and it says when he Jesus when he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him now we read that and we are grossed out i mean it's gross and we have just spent the eight, last 18 months being scared of everybody else's germs so it's really gross to us okay but Jesus um spits and and then and then touches his eyes and saliva at this time was considered um, like a viable treatment for eye ailments. So what what is suggested here is that Jesus was trying to help this man build his faith, that he was helping him kind of um have faith in what he's doing. And 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 he had spit another time a couple chapters back I don't know if you remember he had healed a deaf man and he had spit and he'd stuck his his fingers in the deaf man's ears. And in both of these situations these men had limited senses. And it almost seems like Jesus was helping them to understand what was going on with their limited senses by by talking to them or or by f- helping them to feel whatever was going on. And in this case it was a man who could not see. And so um, Jesus was helping him with his faith in this moment to understand what he was doing. But it goes on. It's very curious what happens next. It says, Jesus asked, do you see anything? Now, this is the only time in scripture where Jesus checks to make sure that the miracle worked. And interestingly enough, it didn't quite work. It says, he looked up and said, the blind man said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Now, isn't this interesting? Jesus, who calms storms with a word, who heals a woman of, you know, over a decade long of sickness by her just touching his clothes, him feeding thousands of people twice, and he can't seem to heal the guy all at once? Interesting. Well, I think it's interesting because there's more to this. There's a lesson for the disciples in this says he can only distinguish a little bit. So verse 25, once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes and then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. So he healed him and he healed him completely. It says his eyes were opened. His sight was restored. He saw everything clearly. Interesting that they say it three different ways. This guy was taken care of. All was well. But Jesus is teaching the disciples something very important here in this healing. Remember the eight questions, the barrage of all those questions in the boat. Do you, are you deaf? Can you see? Do you not understand? Now he's showing them, look, this spiritual growth thing, it is a gradual thing. It is going to take time. And the one who brings clarity is Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is the one who is going to heal the disciples of their misunderstanding. If there was any more self-deprecating thoughts for the disciples, if there were any more um, thoughts of just how stupid they were, Jesus is showing them, I'm not giving up on you. This is going to be a process, and I am with you in the process. I am not giving up. You may not see everything clearly right now spiritually, but I, Jesus will make things clear. He will bring that clarity. He is the one who will stick with us as we journey in this life of faith. That when we don't understand things, He will help us. And by using the spit here, He's reminding the disciples of that miracle with the deaf man two chapters ago. He's answering His own questions to the disciples Are you deaf? Are you blind? Well, if so, I can fix it, and I will fix it. But it might not come quickly. It might be a gradual process. But if you keep yourself humble, and unlike the Pharisees, and unlike Herod, if you come to Jesus with a humble heart, not demanding of him, but just seeking him and asking, Jesus will give you eyes to see and ears to hear. And, and just like this blind man, Jesus meets us where we are, And he takes us where we need to go. This spiritual journey, it's difficult to navigate. It's hard. And there are ups and downs that come that make us question things. And and there's influences that come in and out of our lives that can kind of skew our thinking. And Jesus knows this. And even though we don't always get it, he always gets us. And he helps us. He helps us through it. You know, in our own selfishness, our own self-consuming tendencies, you know, we get misdirected at times. But Jesus walks with us. He will journey with us. He will help us work our way around the craziness of this life. He's guiding us. He's helping us. He's patient with us. You know, it's interesting to me that the two groups we would assume would understand quickly— still need help. The Pharisees, obviously, you know, we would think they would have gotten who Jesus was. We would have, you know, in all logic, the religious scholars of the day, wouldn't they have gotten it? And they didn't get it. And the disciples, handpicked by Jesus, and they don't get things right away either. It gives us hope. It gives us hope when we don't get it all right. You know, I think there are some of us in this room who are relatively new to faith and you look around at other people and you think, man, I got a lot to learn. I mean, I really am behind the eight ball here and I don't know a lot. I want you to rest in this lesson that if you keep at it, if you keep seeking God, if you keep doing the things that will help you grow in your faith, not in your own ability to prove yourself, but in a way to to grow closer to God, to learn who He is, to understand Him better, to get to know Him better. As you do that, you will grow. And two years from now, you'll look back and you'll say, I can't believe how I'm different. I can't believe where I have come from and where I have gone. Because Jesus is faithful. You know, we can't be saved by what we do. It is Jesus's work on the cross, like I said earlier. But when we do the things of the faith, when we practice spiritual disciplines like praying regularly and and reading our Bibles and coming to church and fellowshipping with other believers, when we do those things, we will grow. So there is a work element to our faith, not to earn salvation, but to help us in this process. It's that walking with Jesus. Jesus. And so I want to encourage you, if you are new in the faith and you, you feel overwhelmed by all you don't understand, don't worry. Keep, keep at it. Keep pursuing God, and you will learn more and more. And then, honestly, we're never all going to learn it all until we get to heaven. You know, created beings are never going to fully be able to gr- grasp the creator. But then I wonder, there are probably some of us in this room who look back on the last two years and look back at the person you were two years ago and you think, wow, I don't know that I've really changed all that much. I don't know that I'm growing. And you know, our faith is not meant to be stagnant. Our faith is, is meant to continue to thrive and to grow. And yes, we will have kind of these, these times of, of intense growth and then other times where it's just not so much, kind of like the grass in the yard. Like right now, we can't keep up with it. In the fall, you got to cut it every once in a while. But are you growing at all? And I would challenge you to ask God this week, where am I tripping up? What is the cause of that lack of growth? Am I spending time with you? Am I reading my Bible? Am I just taking all my knowledge for granted and, and living off of what I learned years ago or what I experienced years ago? Are you allowing influences of the world to, to impact your views and your life and your faith more than you should? It's worth asking God because if you're not growing, something's up. Something's up. So I want to encourage us this week, do some business with God. If you are you know, early in your faith, just continue to seek him. And if you're stagnant, I want to encourage you, ask him, seek him, and pursue him once again. Let's not be formed and blinded by the lies of our culture, but let's turn to the one who helps us see clearly. Now, I'm going to pray And oftentimes I feel like at the end of of a message, we can just quickly pray and we listen to the prayer and just kind of like, uh-huh, uh-huh. And we're gathering our thoughts to move on with what's happening next. But what I really want you to do as I pray is I want you to pray along with me, to actively, not passively just sit there, but actively pray with me and ask God to reveal to you, to take away any blindness that you may have and to help you on this journey. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are such a good, good father. I thank you that you meet us where we are, that you understand why we are where we are. And I thank you that you take us by the hand and you are willing to walk with us and to show us the way. And so, Father, where we're tripping up right now, where we're being influenced by the world instead of influenced by you, where we may be blinded by things in our past or or our own sin, Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you would set us free from those things, that you would help us to see clearly today and help us to be changed, to be more like you. Father, we give you our lives In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Thanks again for joining us here at The Vineyard. It's our greatest desire to see you find and follow God, and we hope that this podcast has helped you do just that. For more video messages and content, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. Again, thanks for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.